Jeremiah 14. The word of the Eternal that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth, that is the drought. Judah mourns, the gates thereof languish, they're black to the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. In other words, a dearth brings famine, and then it brings pestilence. Uh, disease brings blackness of face. Uh, that is what is used to describe that in the Bible. So the wailing, the crying is going up. And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits, or the wells, and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Now in the prayer, it was mentioned at the beginning of the service that uh, God bless the spiritual food that will be given us today. I recall as we start this, Amos 8:11, where it says there will be a famine, not of bread, but a famine of the Word of God. And it fits right in with the direction and the understanding we have of all these prophecies, is that the famine of the Word of God comes ahead of the famine of physical bread upon the physical nation. So the cry that is going up now is of God's people who are facing confusion, who are confounded, who are ashamed, who go to here and come back with vessels empty. So many, many people these days say, well, yeah, we go to church, but nothing much is said, really. It wasn't wrong. It just was not there to feed me. I'm not being fed is a very common lament of people in the churches today. Because the ground is chapped, cracked, for there was no rain in the earth, the plowmen were ashamed, they covered their heads. Isn't it hard to lift up your head and brag today about what a great work you might be doing? Some try, but isn't it pretty empty because there is no growth? There isn't much being produced. You do a lot of work and don't produce much of a crop. Where are the fruits of all those labors? The churches continue to slowly, gradually get smaller. Yes, the hind also calved in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. Forsook her own baby, perhaps, because she could not make a living based on the amount of food that was there. And aren't the churches forsaking the babes in Christ in terms of what they are able to provide and they can't feed the babes and cause them to grow. A lack of growth is seen throughout the church today, not only in physical numbers, but in spiritual understanding. There's not much being disseminated. It is an echoing of the same old things over and over and over again. And that's why you go and say, well, I wasn't being fed. You know, I, I ate that a long time ago, and there's nothing to sustain me, nothing to keep me growing. The wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like dragons. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. So he depicts the church like wild animals, like wild donkeys that stand up high in the passes where the breezes blow, trying to sniff out fresh greenery that they might go eat, and it doesn't waft up the canyons. There's nothing down there to eat. So we have a spiritual famine now, which will soon be followed by a physical one. Verse 7, O Lord, Jeremiah begins to pray, Though our iniquities testify against us, do you it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against you. He's asking for forgiveness and blessing even though we don't deserve it. In other words, for mercy. He says, we, we have many test iniquities, we have many faults, we have many weaknesses, but please have mercy on us. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel! the Savior thereof, in time of trouble. Why should you be as a stranger in the land? In other words, we've gotten where we're not familiar with having God around. He's been away. 
He's had his face turned, as many scriptures show. And as a wayfaring man that turns aside to tarry for a night. In other words, it just seems like God is just sort of passing through. He's going to stay in the Super 8 tonight, and then he'll be gone tomorrow. It's not like he lives and dwells with us. Like he's hearing our prayers and answering them. Isn't that a familiar refrain? How often do we pray? How often do we seek healing, help, guidance, blessing? And it seems like not much comes. How many prayers by how many preachers and how many members of the church worldwide go up to God praying for an increase, praying that booklets and magazines and broadcasts that are made will produce fruit? How many hundreds of thousands, how many millions of prayers of that nature have been prayed in the last 20 years in the church of God. I'll bet they are countless. Whole organizations praying that God will bless their work, bless what they're doing. But not much happens. It's like God has sort of passed through and where did he go? He's gone. Why should you be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Why do we look to you, God, as the great creator of the universe who made it all, and it doesn't appear that you can save? Because it doesn't appear that you are. Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Leave us not is the plea. Don't forsake us. Now, Christ said he would never forsake us or leave us. The problem is we forsook and left him in terms of our hearts, our minds, our beings, and sought the idols of the culture around us. And he is not pleased. Therefore, Jeremiah makes this prayer, this plea. Don't be a stranger to us. Don't sleep here and leave. Don't leave us. Thus says the Eternal to this people. Now, here's God's answer to the plea Jeremiah just made. Thus have they loved to wander. They have not refrained their feet. They've gone ahead and done the things they wanted, gone where they wanted to go, done what they wanted to do. They've not stopped their feet from going places God would not have us go. We are told to walk as Christ walked. But we have walked so often as the world has walked. And we don't control our feet. Therefore, the Eternal does not accept them. He will now remember their iniquities and visit their sins. How many prayers have you and I made where we ask God to forget our iniquities and forgive our sins. Many, many, many. I don't think a day goes by hardly that I don't pray that God forgive my iniquities and not remember my sins. But God is in the attitude and the posture right now that he is in no mood to do that overall to the church. I will now remember their iniquities and visit their sins, he says. Then said the Lord to me, pray not for this people for their good. Just don't do it. Don't bother, he says. Now, is God upset and frustrated or not? When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them. Now, is this speaking of physical Israel out here? How often do they fast and cry out to God for forgiveness and mercy? They don't do that. Not the only ones really that do are people in the church. Well, some out in the world and some religions do to some degree. 
but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. And that is coming close now being accomplished, a matter of history, not prophecy, in the church. It will very soon come physically on the world and 90% of the church. Then said I, Ah, Lord God. That, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? To read that. Isn't that heavy? God says, don't even pray for this people. I will not listen. They fast. I will not hear them. I will turn a deaf ear. That must have frustrated Jeremiah greatly. Just as it does you and me to read this. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Is that not the message that most churches are giving the churches of God today? If you stay in this organization, they will say, you will not see the sword or famine. I will give you assured peace in this organization or place. That is a very common pronouncement in the churches by the ministry today. You're here, you're fine, you're safe. You will have no problems. You will be delivered. I can't tell you that, brethren. I can tell you, whatever place you're in, if you will hear and heed what God and Jeremiah are saying here, that you will be safe. But if you don't heed what is being said here, you will not. Being in this place will do you no good unless you do what God tells you to do. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. They use the name of God and say we're God's church and we're God's Philadelphians and prophesy lies. They don't understand. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke to them. They prophesy to you a false vision and divination, and a thing of nothing, and the deceit of their heart. They have devised in their own hearts an end-time scenario in which they, and essentially only they, will be saved. And they are preaching it to the congregations. And it is nothing, and it is not from God, and it is a deceit of their heart. To tell people in this day and age, you will have peace in my organization. It is not true. Those organizations are all coming down. There will not be one stone left upon another in the temple. It may take a little while yet, but it will happen. And so will this one, if we don't heed these words. Therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 15, concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not. Yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. Now, a lot of them are preaching that there will be physical destruction on the people of the nation, but not on those who come to their churches. But it says those prophets will also be consumed. So anyone who brings you today a message of peace and you will be okay and nothing bad will happen to you if you're in my organization, God did not send and he says they're liars. And that that will not come to pass, but there will be destruction and those very prophets themselves will be destroyed. 
Is the message important? Or is it not? Does it matter which message we hear so long as we keep the Sabbath and go to the feast? Is that going to save us? Do we have to do more? You know, it's one thing to go back to a few passages, isolate them, jerk them out of context, and say, grace, grace. But do we deny the words of Jesus Christ himself? Do we throw out Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the name of grace, where he said over and over again, keep the commandments? Where he told the young rich man, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments? The direction worldwide and many in the church of God today are headed in the name of grace is a destructive path that will destroy us if we go there. We will only receive the grace of God by diligent obedience to all of his rules. That's the only way we'll receive the grace of God. Those prophets will be consumed, and the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. He's talking about the church here. Ninety percent of it. Excluding only a faithful remnant who will turn to God. Therefore you shall say this word to them. Here's what to say to them. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. The walls, the spiritual walls, have been broken down, and Satan and the world have encroached within the church, have invaded it, and have destroyed it, but at God's behest, at his direction, at his invite. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with a sword, and if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. Yes, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land that they know not. So this is a prophecy not only against physical people, but spiritual leaders. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Have you, has your soul loathed Zion? Those are key words for the church, or as we well know, or code words for the church. Why have you smitten us, and there is no healing for us? Why don't we have healing? Here's the question. We look for peace, and there is no good. There's no peace in the church today, or very little. And for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. All of us here look to a time of healing that we have read about in the Scriptures. We've seen many that show that God is going to heal and help and bless His faithful remnant. But the time hasn't come yet. hasn't started. We looked for the time of healing, and instead we've got trouble, don't we? We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness. I think this is coming from the right direction. This is what we need to do. We, we see that we need a time of healing in, in all facets of life. And instead, behold, we see trouble. So, what is reaction? We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Here is where we begin to come to the point we could see a turnaround when we look for a time of peace and healing and behold nothing but trouble. How many of us in this small group are sick and afflicted with various things, some of them quite serious, diseases, illnesses, accidents, you name it, we have trouble. Where do we start? 
we, we start by saying, not delay the sins, but we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your namesake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, break not your covenant with us. You know, it's kind of lame for us to approach God and say, you know, we're doing the best we can, Lord, and sure we sin some, but bless us anyway. That's kind of lame when he looks down and sees all that's going on. The better approach is don't abhor us for your name's sake. Now, he called out a people in this end time, just as he originally called out Abraham and developed a nation Israel. And God said he would bless that people, and if they would obey, he would continue, otherwise he would curse. So, we can't appeal on our godliness, can we? We can only appeal to him based on the fact he said he would be a success and that all Israel would be saved, as Paul says in Romans 11. And basically that the church, before it's all done, the majority of the church will be saved. 10% saved out of tribulation, 30-40% saved in the tribulation, per Zechariah. And maybe the rest weren't converted and will have their chance in the great white throne judgment, or if they live, into the millennium and be saved there. God is going to be a resounding success. And he has said so. He will not, brethren, be a failure. So if there's something that we could appeal, it is that we have sinned, but for the sake of your plan and your purpose in us, don't forsake us. And appeal to that side of it. This is something we can and should do. What Jeremiah tells us to do here. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are not you, he, O Lord, our God? You are the only one that we can come to and ask for help that can provide it. This world is fast coming apart right before our eyes. This nation, as we saw in the announcement period, is fast coming apart right before our eyes. Jobs are being outsourced, and cheap wages are being insourced through illegal immigration. And pretty soon, those who constituted America originally will not have jobs. Whether they came willingly as indentured servants or slaves, or however, hundreds of years ago, they composed what 50 years ago was America. But in the last 10, 15 years, the borders have disappeared, and anyone can come here from Mexico, no matter where he flew into Mexico City from. And we are going away as a nation, as a people. To whom can we look? To God only, because this nation has had it, and this world has had it. The dynamics are already in place that will destroy the culture as we have known it, and they, in fact, already are doing so. Are you not he, O Lord our God? All right, then what's the answer? Therefore we will wait upon you, for you have made all these things. The only posture we can take is to ask God not to abhor us because of our sins, to forgive us and have mercy for his name's sake and the purpose and plan that he's laid out in this book, and then wait patiently for him. So many of those who wrote in the Bible came to that conclusion because God led them there in their thinking, like Habakkuk, who got in an attitude and began to whine and knew around before the throne of God, and why 
this is taking so long and what's the answer? And began to get frustrated and finally came to the conclusion, I'll sit on my watch and wait because you know what you're doing. There's where faith and hope are important. We must wait for God. We must trust Him, believe Him, that He will answer if we do our part. He's promised and sworn by His name that He will, that He will save us if we do what we're supposed to do. Now, we need faith and trust that that will happen and patiently move forward believing it. If you don't believe something's going to happen, it's hard to move forward, isn't it? If you're looking, anticipating a new job, if you're anticipating uh, a baby, can't seem to get pregnant, or whatever it is you hope for, and you don't see any possibility, any results, it gets discouraging. But we have to trust that he and his supreme wisdom knows exactly when everything should happen and how it should happen. So we wait patiently. That's what faith is all about. Believing it. And we hope because we do believe. Without hope, it's hard to move forward. So faith has to come where we actually believe and trust that God will provide the answers and will not abhor us, but will hear our plea and hope in that faith, and in the meantime, do that which is most important, and that is love one another. Because faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. That love has to be defined by God's Word. I think Mr. Armstrong put it pretty aptly by saying, outgoing concern. That is, concern which isn't just something you have within, or a gooey feeling, but that is expressed in how we treat one another and what we do for one another. Something you feel inside but never say or do anything about doesn't do anyone a whole lot of good. It's just a gooey feeling you have inside. How would it be to live with a mate who told you once that he or she loved you, but figured that was enough? I said it. Why should I have to say it again? You know, he can go around or she with that feeling inside from now on and never say it or never express it. What kind of life would that be if you have a mate who can't say, I love you? It's better if they say it every day, isn't it? You bet it is. How much affection and feeling and caring do we have for one another, and how often do we express it, and how often do we then also show it in our actions? Faith, hope, and love are the three important things. That's really what this is all talking about. God is sovereign. And if we believe him and believe all his words, then we will act accordingly and we will be blessed. But that is something that is yet ahead somewhere, because he carries on in chapter 15, Then said the Lord to me, he, you know, Jeremiah makes this plea, Don't abhor us for your name's sake, please intervene, please hear what was God's answer to that? For right now, this is a prophecy for the end times. Right now. Then said the Lord to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me. Now remember how Moses stood before God and said, Destroy me instead of this people? How Moses entreated God and God heard Moses? How Samuel entreated God? And God heard Samuel. God picked out these two examples for a reason. 
Though Moses and Samuel stood before me. Could you find two better names to stand in the gap between us and God? Out of history. Yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go away. So many scriptures say God has turned his face from the church and from the nation. And he has. And it shall come to pass, if they say to you, Where shall we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord. And people say, What should we do? Where are we going to go? Where shall we go forth? He says, This is what you shall tell people. Be it the church, or be it the physical nation. Such is for death to death. Such as for the as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as they, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity, and I will point over them four kinds, says the Eternal: the sword to slay, dogs to tear, fowls of the heaven, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. If you want the people to know what's coming, tell them this. Don't tell them you'll have peace in this place. Tell them that whichever of these four things just happens to happen to them, all four of them are coming, and some will be for the sword, some will be for the famine and pestilence, some will go into slavery. And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth, it's not just the Assyrian. It is a worldwide coalition against Israel. Why? Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. In other words, God points out Manasseh, who was a terribly evil king, as an example of, what, uh, of how he looks, essentially, at the church and physical Israel today. He uses him as a type. That type could fit the leaders of Worldwide Church of God today. We're taking those people right back to Babylon and Baal worship and Satanism. With their sun worshiping, prayer circles and chants, and jumping up and down and singing Protestant music. I would not want to be in their shoes. I don't even like being in my shoes. When I preach to you, you'd better repent, because it's scary to me that if I don't repent and you don't repent, we're going to miss out. It's really scary when God looks at the church and the nation and says they're just like King Manasseh. The evil comes up to me continually and daily. For who shall have pity upon you, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan you? Or who shall go aside to ask, How are you doing? Who cares about the church today of those that are not in the church? Who cares how we're doing? They're not going to ask of us, How's, how's it going? How are you doing? And do you think that it just comes physically upon the Israelitish countries from all the coalitions of the Gentiles against us, that anyone will bother to come by and say, how you doing? They hate us with a passion. They're not going to care. You have forsaken me, says the Eternal. You are gone backward. Therefore will I stretch out my hand against you and destroy you I am weary with relenting. I'm weary of putting this off. I'm just going to go ahead and do it to you. And I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people, since they return not from their ways. The key to this whole thing is changing, repenting, overcoming, growing. 
Isn't that what God told the whole church? Is this talking just about the physical nation? Or is it talking about the church? Let's read on. Their widows are increased in thee above the sand of the seas. I have brought upon them against the mother of the young, of young men, a spoiler in noonday. I have caused him to fall upon it suddenly. We saw that earlier in Jeremiah, how this thing will happen in a moment, suddenly. And terrors upon the city. She that has borne seven languishes. How many eras of the church are listed in Revelation 2 and 3? Seven. Can you say that of the physical nation? Can you say, I, I can't think of anything that could fit this. Maybe there is something that says that Israel has produced seven daughters or children. I, I, nothing will come to my mind. I draw a blank there. But it's very obvious in Scripture that there would be seven eras or seven attitudes in the church. He talks in Isaiah 4, about seven women or churches taking hold of one man when all this hits. Isaiah 41 talks about seven churches being, or trees, being planted in the wilderness. Seven is a number that has to do with the church, not with the physical nations of Israel, of which there are twelve. Thirteen, depending on how you divide it up. She that has borne seven languishes. In other words, this is talking directly to the church here. She has given up the ghost. She's dying, in other words. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. There are those who think that, boy, we're still working in the daylight. But the, the sun has gone down. Let's face it. Nothing's happening. No growth is coming. No fruits are being produced. She has been ashamed and confounded, confused, frustrated. Everything we do doesn't seem to produce anything. The residue of them will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Eternal. So the sword is coming upon the church which is born seven. Woe is me, my mother. Isn't the church listed in Galatians as the mother of us all? Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have ne neither lent on usury, nor men have lent to me on usury, yet every one of them does curse me. I haven't charged interest, haven't taken advantage, but they all curse me. Now that is going to be said of us, I think, before very long. The Eternal said, Truly it shall be well with your remnant. And all of this dire proclamation of what God says and the destruction that is coming, he interjects here, Truly it shall be well with your remnant. Truly I will cause the enemy to entreat you well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. Now, when you have this kind of massive destruction, doesn't it behoove you to be a part of a faithful remnant that God says will be protected and taken care of in a time of evil and a time of affliction? Now, if you're going to see the nation go into physical captivity and die of sword, famine, and pestilence and disease, and you're going to see most of the church go there as well, don't you think it makes sense to look into what it takes to escape that? Didn't Christ say that if the householder knew that the thief was coming and was going to steal everything in the house, maybe ravage his wife and daughters, kill his sons, I'm taking it beyond what Christ actually said there, but you knew what hour the thief was coming into the house. Wouldn't you prevent it? Now, we know this thing is already encroaching on American shores. It's not far away. In fact, it's here 
It just hasn't crashed yet. And we know that the church is almost destroyed, and sometime in the future, in one month, we're going to see three major trees or ministries knocked down, Zechariah 11. Doesn't it behoove us to see what we need to do to avoid that? I think that should be paramount in our thinking. What can I do to help my brothers and sisters, my family, myself, to avoid this? He goes on. Shall iron break the northern iron and the steel? It's a question. Can the iron we have break the northern iron that God is going to send against us? No way. Your substance and your treasures will I give to the spoil without price. They can have it freely. And that for all your sins, even in all your borders. doesn't matter where it is. It's going to be taken. And I will make you to pass with your enemies into a land which you know not. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. What could be worse than having God mad at you? He who can destroy you or cause you to live. This is pretty heavy for poor Jeremiah. So he begins to pray. Your words were found... And I did eat them. Again, it was unusual, the prayer this morning. The blessing was asked on the spiritual food we're about to receive, not just the physical. And this one flashed into my mind when those words were uttered, because I knew you would probably get to it. Your words were found, and I did eat them. Now, a lot of people are spouting their ideas throughout the church. There are people spouting their ideas in this nation about how to save the nation. But God said, don't even pray for them. I will not hear. I will not answer. The church or the nation. But Jeremiah says, your words were found. Well, now, where are we going to find God's words? Are we going to find them in the Declaration of Independence? Not very many. Are we going to find them in the Constitution? Are we going to find them in the churches? For the most part, the only place you're going to find God's words is to go, lo and behold, to God's Word. This book is where you're going to find the words of God. We've been reading the words of God today, and you know, they haven't been too palatable, have they? I mean, right here in this context, this hasn't been a very pleasant day. These have not been pleasant words. These are hard sayings. Now, sometimes we're asked to eat things that we don't really want to eat. We don't have an appetite for them. Sometimes, for our health's sake, we need to deny how something might taste to us and eat it anyway because it's good for us. Jeremiah said, I've heard these... What, what, was, what words was Jeremiah hearing when he made these prayer, this prayer? These very words we've been reading today are the words that Jeremiah was talking about. He wasn't talking about some other part of a Bible... He was talking about what God had told him right here. Your words are found. Now, aren't we finding them, brethren, by reading all these things that people are overlooking that God has said? Your words were found, and I did eat them. I was willing to listen willing to hear what you have to say. Now, it doesn't do any good to eat something unless you also digest it and it goes into your body and infuses it with energy and strength 
to do something. It doesn't do us any good to take these words into our bodies unless we also digest them and do something with them. It is not the hearers of the word, but the doers who will be justified. So, listening isn't enough. Eat them. And your word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Now, we read something pretty good back there, a few verses back, where it says it will be well with the remnant. Those that remain. Those that remain faithful. That becomes a joy to us, doesn't it? I look forward to being a part of that remnant. I hope I make it. Hope I can be a part of those that God turns his face back to and blesses as no people have ever been blessed on the face of this earth before, with the exception of Adam and Eve, perhaps for a very short time. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I want to be associated with God. I want to have his name pronounced upon me. God is going to give us a new name if we're faithful. Now, Jeremiah goes on to say, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of your hand, for you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you be altogether in the knee as a liar in his waters that fail? Now, haven't our emotions gone right here? Back and forth. Now, understand, Jeremiah was the righteous one here. Jeremiah was the one in contact with God. He was the one that God was using to tell people what they need to do in order to achieve the blessings of God. And yet, Jeremiah himself said his pain was perpetual, never-ending pain. My wound incurable refuses to be healed. Now, isn't that exactly where we are today as a church and as a people? We pray and we pray. We get little answers here and there that just barely keep us alive, it seems. And yet we don't have the wholesale healings that we would desire. God said to great tribulation enter the kingdom, and many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he will deliver them out of them all. So the very man God was using felt that he was in perpetual pain and incurably sick. Why then are we so worried, frustrated, and concerned, perhaps sometimes in a wrong way? In other words, you think, boy, the more we obey God, you think the more we just receive blessing after blessing. But God says that's not quite the way that it works, that we must be tried in fire, tribulation, difficulty, and refined as silver and gold, which requires a great deal of heat. So God has the heat turned on us right now, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, even physically. And we're kind of like Jeremiah was, and like David was. We sang a hymn at the end of the sermonette just before it came up here about this very thing. Psalm 44, I think it was. Right in those psalms where David was perplexed and hadn't begun to see the answers yet just as we today are perplexed, and we haven't begun to see much in the ways of answers, or in the way of answers. Although, I think if we backed off and I talked about it here, we could see God's hand and what we are doing as a tiny little group. We are trying to change. We are working at growing and overcoming, which is God told, what God told us we have to do if we're going to be in the kingdom of God. Verse 19, Therefore thus says the Eternal, 
Now, when Jeremiah was so burdened by perpetual pain and seemed incurable, what does God say? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return to me, is implied, if you'll return to me, then will I bring you back again, and you shall stand before me. That's talking about the kingdom of God. That's talking about even maybe standing before him on this earth, where he's not turned his face away, who's in the posture of denial, in other words, but where we'll stand before him. And if you take forth the precious from the vile, separate, that is, the clean from the unclean, as Haggai says, that the ministry in this day and age tends not to do. They won't separate the clean from the unclean. Take the precious from the vile. You shall be as my mouth, he tells Jeremiah. If you want the answer to this, separate the precious from the vile. Brethren, that is what I am trying to do for us. I am examining this world and its culture in the light of God's word and trying to point out the errors that are out there and what we need to do to separate that which God would categorize as precious as opposed to that which he would categorize as vile. You can use many analogies, clean and unclean, godly, ungodly, precious, vile. It's all the same thing. We have to sort out what is godly and goodly, and that which is evil and satanic and of man. I run into trouble sometimes when I slay what to some people are sacred cows. Habits, ways of doing things, parts of our culture that we need to be denying. In some cases, we outright rebel against changing our habits. Or we do it grudgingly. And it's hard to change everything that is American to everything that is Godly. Because, brethren, basically everything that is American is Babylonian and satanic and of the wrong culture, and it is not Godly. This so-called Christian nation, God brands, is unchristian. And virtually everything in it is unchristian. It is vile. There is no part of the American culture that to God is salvageable or will be a part of the world tomorrow in the kingdom of God. It just won't be there. And he is calling on you and me today to depart from iniquity, to depart from the vile that is our culture and our land today. We don't like to change. This is the way we grew up. This is the way we are. But God says it is not what he wants us to be. I know you fight me, but in some respects... I don't take that personal. You're fighting your nature. You're fighting the around. You're fighting changing what you have grown up to believe in. We grew up in civics class believing in Washington, D.C., in our system of government, which was a fine system. But it's a system God hates. It is a system that was based on Masonic, occult, wrong, vile principles. Our capital city is laid out according to the occult. It has phallic symbols throughout. Everything basically in Washington is pagan to the core, including the dollar bill 
and all the symbols that are on it. That which we trusted in, God says, is no good. It's fine. So, we're fighting what we are and trying to change what we are into what God wants us to be. And this does not come easy. But he says the only answer to this is, when you feel perpetual pain and incurable sickness, is to turn to him with your whole heart and separate the precious from the vile, then you shall be as my mouth. In other words, God can then use us, brethren. We are unusable as long as we look, act, think, according to American culture. We are usable if we separate the vileness, then he will use us as his mouth. We have to make the change. It doesn't do any good just to talk about it. You eat the words, you got to digest them. You can eat food, but if it goes through your body undigested, you don't obtain any benefit from it. If it digests and goes into your cells and empowers you, then it's done you some good. So separate these things, and you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but return not you to them. That's something that's very important for us to consider now. We're not to return to the church as it was. They are to come to us. Now, us being those who will do what God just said. I'm not saying this group, this organization... What I'm saying is, those who hear and eat and digest and perform what God is saying right here will be the ones God uses, and God says, let them come to you, don't go to them. Now, do we have something different here that we're hearing and learning from what others are hearing and learning. How many are willing to separate the clean from the unclean and just tear it apart, that is, our culture around us, and change it and look un-American? I want to be godly-looking, not American-looking and acting and thinking. And I think you do, too or you would not be hearing and eating these words. But digest them and use them for energy to change. And God will use us. And then we won't need to turn back to them or go to them. They will come to us if we do what he says here. Once in a while somebody wants to go to a different feast site because it might be exotic or something. Why are we going to the Feast of Tabernacles? Are we going to hear the words of God the way God wants them read? Or are we going to be entertained in an exotic place that we like to go? If we're really going there to worship the King and serve the Lord of hosts, will a bunch of blah sermons accomplish that? Why would you want to go to God's Feast of Tabernacles and hear messages that don't cause you or stimulate you to become un-American? Why would you do that? Why would you go to them? Why not make these changes, be usable to God, and be as His mouth, and have them come to us? Can we be in that position? I'm not saying we are. I'm not saying we all will be. I'm saying we are candidates for it, and it could happen if we will do what he says right here. Let them return to you, but return not you to them. And I will make you to this people a fenced, brazen wall. And they shall fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. Now, isn't this the position of strength 
you and I would like to be in? For I am with you to save you and to deliver you, says the Eternal. And I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you out of the hand of the terrible. Eat these words, and you will be saved from all the trouble that is coming.